Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We kick things off with Ellen Zentner, Chief U.S. Economist at Morgan Stanley. Any number of ways we could uh, go here. Great to have you with us. Let me start with uh, the op-ed in the Washington Post that this morning, as I mentioned, we're going to hear from the Secretary of Commerce a little later uh, on the show. He wrote a piece about NAFTA uh, rules in particular. Uh, I wonder uh, what your sense is of this administration's trade policy uh, at this point. We're approaching the third round of NAFTA renegotiations uh, at this point. What's your sense of the policy and how things are going, particularly when it comes to, to NAFTA? I think, you know, David, it feels like we're finally getting to the meat of some of these policies, whereas before uh, we were we were guessing at first for for quite some time of what what Trump's policies would be like. Um, And then we got used to this sort of threaten with a big stick um, and get get, you know, basically what you wanted. But but big threats. Um, now it feels like with Wilbur Ross, um, you know, hitting the ground running, getting to the meat of it, getting to the heart of things, I think this is where where some of the worries come back, will come back after some relief for the Mexican peso, let's say, uh, uh, because we're starting to see details that actually could make it into a new NAFTA. Yeah, the the piece is called NAFTA rules are killing our jobs, and he closes with with a strong statement. He said, uh, things are going to change under President Trump, and this is only just the beginning. Rules of origin, just the the beginning. Uh, there's well, I a can, lot. Go ahead. I yeah. can tell you that that you know I was I was working at the state of Texas um, when NAFTA went in, and um, we we benefited and continue to benefit immensely uh, from all of the NAFTA trade corridors that come right up through the state. Mm. Um, the the longest interstate um, in the country, I-35, comes right up through the center of Texas and is the main vein of NAFTA and all of the ancillary businesses that popped up along the way, supporting all of the, the uh, uh, motor vehicle manufacturing on both sides of the, of the border there, uh, has just been a boon for the, the state. Um, and I think some of that, uh, we, get, we get lost in just looking at net trade numbers um, and thinking that it's, that it's not good policy. That doesn't mean it's not dated. Um, and certainly I would be a fan of looking at any trade policy that's 20-some-odd years lo- uh, old. Um, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot that needs to be done there. You mentioned the, the trade data. Let me just ask you about that in, in particular. We've heard all of the rhetoric, and we wonder what might or might not happen. Are we be- beginning to see changes uh, in the trade data itself uh, as a result of this administration's policies? Uh, not as a result of okay. the administration's policies, but yes, we are seeing much better net trade data. Um, the uh, our, our leading indicator of global trade started turning up sharply last summer. That's not a Trump trade. That's well before the election. Um, and on the back of that, we could see that global growth was strengthening. Uh, you know, think about this: the first time we've ever been in a situation where central banks. Major banks like Morgan Stanley, other banks around the globe constantly revising upward their forecast for global growth. We started seeing it come through uh, in strong demand for U.S. exports. Uh, and then we've had stronger de- demand domestically this year. And so it's just been a, a nice cocktail for net trade. And it's been one of the biggest sources of upside surprise for GDP this year. You're completely off the edge. Good morning, everyone. David Gurr and Tom Keene. With less traffic in mid... John Tucker, there is less traffic when you brought the Hummer in this morning, right? 
right? Uh, the UN General Assembly meeting is still taking place, but there are fewer uh, big muckety mucks yeah. in town. So just yeah. John, yeah. just John, just me yeah. and Ellen. But but you know, Ellen, I, I, just something out of left field, which is what are our import dynamics right now? We always talk export this and that. NX is exports less imports. What's the import story right now? So imports have been tracking about in line with our expectations this year. So no real surprise at all because the consumer has been pretty steady this year as well. Uh, and uh, and so it's really the net trade truly is uh, better because of exports growing about twice the pace that we had originally forecasted this year. So it's really been that global story um, showing through for the U.S. That gives you a pop on exports against predicted imports, and that gives you a, a little bit of a GDP pop. Does it get you to 3%? No, it doesn't get you to 3%. And I know that you and I have spent a good deal of time talking about this. You know, it is just with, with growth in our labor force and productivity as low as it is, it is just not possible to sustain 3% yeah. growth. You can have quarters where we hit it, um, but sustain that kind of growth, no. I'm here with Ellen Zentner of Morgan Stanley. And Ellen, let me ask you about the Fed meeting we had this week, particularly about the Fed's view of the U.S. economy. How in line is that with, with your view? Do you, do you think you're all on the same page? Uh, yeah, they're pretty upbeat. I mean, this is the, the, the first time ever since they, they began submitting forecasts that they have not had to revise downward their growth forecasts this year. In fact, they've revised them upward. And they're not the only global central bank that was in that position. So it's been an extraordinary story. Um, we saw a little bit better uh, growth numbers uh, yet again in the, out of this latest meeting. So even, even Governor Brainerd, a known dove on the Fed that's, that said, I'm, I find low inflation troubling. She still spent the first part of her speech talking about how upbeat she is about the economy. I mean, it's, it's, it's undeniable. It really is this complete disconnect between inflation and the economy. Um, and I'm glad to see that there are those on the Fed that are not being lulled into doing nothing on policy just because inflation is low. Inflation is low right now, as, as Tom and I have discussed this morning, uh, for structural reasons. Uh, and so it, it should not, low inflation should not inform you that there's a ton of slack still left in the economy. That's when you make when policy When do you mistakes. get the jump condition to tangible inflation? I get the idea, leading lagging, and you're supposed to wait, wait, wait. But, but when, when would you envision tangible blended servicing goods inflation? Uh, I would envision it on the back of much stronger productivity numbers because wage growth will also rise on the back the of that. Uh, I also um, uh, envision it as the unemployment rate falls further. Yes, it has to fall further. I mean, at 4.4%, we're just not close enough to Nehru. I disagree with the Fed. I don't think that we're below Nehru or full employment. So you are, are going to make some news here. You're predicting we go under 4% unemployment rate, and we have a select few looking for 3.5% or even 3.0% yeah, well, unemployment rate. Job growth has been so robust, surprisingly robust, this late in the cycle. It needs to slow. If it does not slow, you very quickly get down to a sub-4 unemployment rate. Uh, do, and you, do you have that published number? The, are you there yet? No, we're not publishing sub Okay, so yet. we're making we've, news. We've got, making a, we've got a 4 Michael one. Barr, do something. We're making news with that <laughs> I'm, one. I'm saying it could come down, Tom. You're going to get me in trouble. But we have a forecast that we are at 4-1 next year. Now, the Fed brought their forecast down to that as well uh, in September. Um, but it's not difficult to envision a sub-4 number if job growth does not slow. We have 
forecasted job growth is slowing because we do have a forecast for better productivity, uh, which which uh, means you don't have to create as many jobs to generate as much GDP. Um, but the Fed, well, while Yellen um, and her, her dwindling counterparts on the board um, believe uh, in that the Phillips curve is pretty much dead right now, they do believe in the nonlinearity of the Phillips curve, that it does exert itself very late in the cycle when the unemployment rate has fallen that low. Yeah. And there is strong evidence of that. Okay. Uh, and so we just haven't gotten there. Okay. It's David Gurr and Tom Keaton on a Friday trying to get smarter, trying to get into the weekend reading. We're doing that with Ellen Zentner of Morgan Stanley. Ellen, you know the book, and you know the wonderful and quiet and esteemed Dale Jorgensen of Harvard. Long ago and far away, Information Technology and the American Growth Resurgence, which was a courageous book, which said, okay, who really invests? And it was hypergranular. It was remarkable. Is a snapshot into this thing a million years ago called technology. That book is dead, given where we are today. If Jorgensen was to write that book today, what would he find out about use of technology in American investment? Uh, well, it's it's grown. I mean, it's diffused across the economy. Um, I think what we've also seen, though, was that the, the productivity miracle of the late 90s, early 2000s, that was the anomaly. That was the outlier. Um, and, you know, while technology is diffused <clears throat> and become more broad-based uh, around right. the economy, it results in a lot of non-marketable or non-GDP uh, 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 Productivity, right? So it's not productivity in the traditional way we think of it. It's it's David when you're sitting around, you know, doing the one click buy on Amazon in the evening. It it, it saves right. you more time, right? It makes your life nicer, and so it doesn't translate to GDP. But it but it, there's an amenity factor there. It makes our lives nicer. Okay, it makes our lives nicer if we're the elites, etc. What I'm getting at here, folks, is that word diffuse, which is from Jean Claude Trichet. The idea of only in the U.S. do we diffuse as quickly, and as Louis Alexander over at Nomura brilliantly wrote, technology helps a group, and technology hurts a group. Mm-hmm. Which of those groups is winning right now? Tim Cook wants me to believe technology is helping us all. A lot of our listeners don't agree. Well, the 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 early and the and the broad adopters of technology uh, is who it benefits, and they also happen to be the same ones that invest uh, in that type of technology. Um, and so they're gaining the wealth from that technology, but they're also gaining from the use of that technology. And rural areas, lower middle and lower income families with less access. Um, and less means to enjoy that technology, they are the ones that, that miss out. I want to ask you about uh, immigration here in the last few minutes. We have Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple. Tom alluding to Apple just a moment ago, speaking at the Bloomberg Global Business Forum a little earlier this week. He made a point that really resonated with me. He said if he were leading a country, uh, he'd want to attract the best talent possible. By doing that from wherever, uh, that's going to create jobs. So what do we know about the interplay of immigration and the creation uh, of jobs in countries. Oh, David, don't get me started. The, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, it's 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 been so long overdue that we overhaul our immigration policies around skilled labor um, to fill positions that we can't fill. And the unfortunate thing is, is that the faults run deep on both the the Democrat within the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, um, who don't want to deal with that as a line item. 
unless they only want to deal with it if it's part of a broader immigration reform, which no one can agree on. Um, and it's just an egregious error. Um, I don't care if we put someone from uh, outside of the U.S. in a seat that we can't fill, and they send three-quarters of their pay back to their home country. They still have to pay rent here in the U.S. We get income taxes from them here in the U.S. Maybe they buy a home and we get property taxes from them. They spend. They're at the grocery store. We get something. Right now, we get nothing if we don't fill that seat. Dovetail that with uh, what we're seeing when it comes to tax reform as well. You talk about the the impulse to do something comprehensive, but the inability to do something comprehensive when it comes to immigration reform. Uh, Are we seeing the same thing when it comes to to tax reform? How optimistic are you that uh, the word comprehensive is going to precede uh, tax reform as the as the months we're on here. Well, um, genuinely comprehensive is what both sides want to do. Like genuinely, they are working. Tax policy writers are working behind the scenes to try and get something uh, done. But we will see tax reform live and die ten times before it gets passed. And we're we're calling it more of something like tax relief rather than tax reform. It will have to go through the reconciliation process. There's no way around it, and so it will sunset in ten years. Um, we think something like a phased get a phased-in corporate tax rate uh, dropped to about 25%, but the corporate side will have to be revenue neutral, Mm -hmm. so you're going to have to give up some other things for that as well, uh, like immediate expensing. Um, On the personal side, you get some uh, condensing of the brackets, um, uh, phase out some of the deductions at the higher income levels, but all of it sunsets after after 10 years. Um, And so we're not calling it reform, we're calling it... um, uh, you know, tax relief. Uh-huh. But we do think we get right. something done, but in that critical March-April period yeah. next year when typically Congress is forced to do something. Ellen Zender, thank you so much for the time today. She's Chief Economist for Morgan Stanley uh, uh, with terrific perspective and again way out front on a more tepid glide path to economic growth in America. How serious should we take the possibility of a hydrogen bomb test in the Pacific? I am not in the Department of Defense or National Security, so I can't really judge that. I think you should take very seriously the new sanctions. These are unprecedentedly severe, and I think they'll work. I think they'll have a big impact because China yesterday came out with their very strong statement that their central bank is going to cut off the Chinese banks from dealing with North Korea. China has been the main trade partner for North Korea, followed by Russia and then some very small ones. You cut off the currency flows, shooting off these rockets as rocket men want to do, that's a pretty expensive hobby. Got to get cash from somewhere because I think a lot of those parts must be imported. So as you suggest, China is key to having leverage on North Korea, as the president has said right. time and again as a practical matter. At the same time, you have an agenda at the Secretary of Commerce right. uh, with China when it has comes to trade. How much has that complicated what you can accomplish in the trade area because we also need their help in the geopolitical area? Does that limit what you can get done with China? Well, the A number one priority of the president is to protect the American people. So... Everything has to be focused, number one, on that. But I'm going over to uh, China this weekend, in fact, tomorrow morning. And so we'll see where we are on the other subjects. 
Well, where are we on the other subjects? Because after the Mar-a-Lago meeting with President Xi, there was a bilateral process put in place right. that you've come on our program and talked about. Right. Uh, there were meetings in Washington right. that were expected to bear fruit, for example, on steel. Didn't happen. Right. Uh, where is that process? Is it stalled? Is it behind where you thought it would be at this point? No, the difference is that the first 100 days was low-hanging fruit. The, the livestock thing, while we're very grateful for it and while it's very important, it, it had been kicked around for 14 years. So making that into a reality was much simpler than some of the bigger issues like global overcapacity and basic metals, like intellectual property rights. Those are tough issues, much more central issues, much bigger dollar denominated. So it shouldn't be too surprising that as you get to harder and more complicated issues and bigger ones that it takes a little longer. Secretary Ross, Beijing offered to cut steel overcapacity by um, 2022 by quite a significant amount. And according to reports, the president rejected the deal, a deal that you endorsed. Why didn't he like the deal? Well, it's more complicated than that. We were rethinking through the whole approach to the trade relations with China. And uh, if you notice, he very quickly followed that up with the 301 initiative on intellectual property rights. So it was a question of picking timing and priorities. Well, let's deal with the intellectual property rights a little bit later. Let's deal with steel right now. The president has reportedly sat in the Oval Office and said, I want tariffs. Why is he not getting the tariffs, Secretary Ross? Why is no one around him delivering the tariffs that he wants to see? Well, you're, you're talking about rumors of what went on in the White House, so I'm not really going to comment on those. But on steel, he has announced publicly that he wants that uh, 232 report delayed until we get through the tax thing, because we don't want to interfere with the legislative agenda. The tax thing is the single most important thing on our plate right now, because that plus regulatory reform is what will really drive jobs back drive uh, job creation here and help the balance of payments. So, Secretary Ross, the president is not asking for tariffs? That's not what he's asking for? I, I didn't say that. What I said is you're commenting on someone's I am, so I'm leak. asking an official to confirm whether that's true or not. Is the president asking for tariffs or not? Uh, we, I don't really comment on allegedly leaked information. I'm sorry. But, uh, but aside from that forget whatever reports, um, what kind of tariffs would be acceptable to the White House? Well, the report hasn't been formally issued, and the report will provide the president with some options. So once he's had a chance to digest the report, then we'll know exactly what it is he comes up with. So we are talking with Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce for Bloomberg Radio and Television. Um, let's talk about all those proceedings that seem to be pending at the moment. It's not just the 232. There's a 301. There are various proceedings that we, frankly, have been expecting some action on before this. Now, we may have been mistaken, but should we wait until tax reform is actually enacted before we see progress on any of those matters? Well, on 232, the policy decision has been made to postpone that until the tax bill. The 301 is, is a different kind of a thing. Uh, it's easier from the congressional relations point of view to deal with the intellectual property issue than to deal with the steel issues. So I wouldn't put that in the same category. 
But that's in the early stages. Remember, the president just directed it. And IPR, while it's a huge and hugely important issue, it's also very, very complex. And especially what's complex is figuring out what remedies. So let's move to NAFTA for a second. Um, what percentage do you want to see from the rules of origin? What would you be happy with? What percentage the, of? The rules of origin. What, what percentage would you be happy with? Well, it's more complicated than that. It's the definition of the products as well. One of the problems with the existing rules of origin, take it on autos, for example, they listed exact parts to which the percentages applied. Now, at the time, that sounded like a very good, very precise thing. Problem is, automotive technology has moved on. So a lot of those parts aren't even used anymore. And a lot of the electronic parts that didn't exist back when NAFTA was started are now very important to the mix of the car. And so you've seen in the editorial front that I had in the Washington Post today, the U.S. content has gone down quite appreciably, and the non-Mexican, non-U.S., non-Canada component, namely China and the rest of Asia, has gone up quite considerably. Here's what I just don't understand, because you mentioned that taxes are obviously front and center to the agenda for growth and everything. Okay, so then you're an automaker in the U.S., and you get a tax rate. That's better, and you're happy about that. But then on the flip side, you're going to have to make uh, more products in the U.S. with U.S.-made steel, and that winds up hurting your margins and hurting your earnings. Like, I don't understand how you square those two things. Well, they're not precise trade-offs as such, but U.S. industry encompasses a lot more than just the U.S. automakers. That's, that's number one. We think that if we get the kind of tax relief that we want and we get another one percentage increase in the growth rate of the GDP, that adds $10 trillion to the economy over 10 years, adds $3 trillion to the federal tax revenues. Those are staggering numbers. That dwarfs anything one could do with trade. Secretary Ross, I want to get a handle on how you think about economics at the moment. Do you believe in comparative advantage? Sure. Because at the moment we're defining relationships with countries pretty much through the prism of a trade deficit or a trade surplus. Trade surplus good, trade deficit bad. Why are we looking at it that way? Well, I think that's a little bit of an oversimplification. Uh, there are some causes of trade deficit that we don't mind. For example, we still are not energy independent. Yeah. We therefore have to import oil. That's about $165 billion a year on the negative side of trade. Well, that isn't anybody's fault. And if we choose to buy it from Canada versus buying it from somewhere else... So, Ross, let me jump in then. Outside of energy, is there a trade deficit right now that you do actually think is justified? I think that we will probably end up with a trade deficit. No, with an individual country, an economic relationship with that individual country that you do actually think is justified based on comparative advantage... Uh, I don't think any of them is 100% justified because all of the other countries have highly protectionist measures. It's not part of competitive advantage or natural advantage to put a 25% tariff barrier on cars. That's not, in, that's not a fundamental advantage. That's protectionism. What's been weird is the U.S. is actually the least protectionist of the major countries. But we haven't done a very good job with the rhetoric. China, Japan, and Europe 
do a wonderful job talking free would trade. Say, would you say that not. Mexico is a protectionist country? Because most people would define it as an incredibly open economy. Oh. Would you define Mexico as a protectionist economy? Me Mexico, the reason that they have so many free trade agreements is that their basic tariff structure is quite high. It's much higher than ours. And that's one of the structural disadvantages we have in going to a new free trade agreement, say, with Europe or with uh, Japan. We've given away so much on a unilateral basis, there's not much increment to give them. Take Europe. Europe charges 10% tariff on autos. We charge two and a half. How am I going to get, how are we going to get them to drop a 10% tariff just to get relief from two and a half? You'd have to trade off some other industry. So our unilateral disarmament, if you will, in the trade area actually is an impediment to making trade freer globally because we don't have that much ability to trade down tariffs. Secretary Russ, three very specific questions on NAFTA. One, when do you expect we'll see a new deal? Okay. That needs to be somewhere close to year end uh, for several reasons. The Mexican presidential election is July next year. Canadian provincial elections are around the same time. Midterm elections here are in November. And our Trade Promotion Authority expires in July. And given the nature of Congress nowadays, we don't know whether that's even going to be renewed. So as you move into 2018, it will get progressively more difficult to get a deal. So timing, there's no magic silver bullet to December 31st, but more or less around the end of the year. So second question, if you get out of that new deal, realistically what you can expect, how many jobs will it add to the United States? Well, tens of thousands, maybe 100,000. And third question, what will be the increased cost to automakers? The price well, has to go up. Well, autos are not the only one. Right, but it's an important one. You said in your op-ed piece. It is an important one, but for example, there are other things that can help reduce the deficit. Mexico has to import LNG. They already import some from us. Importing LNG would be a good help. Mexico imports a lot of food products from us. They also import some from elsewhere. Importing a higher percentage from us would also help the trade deficit. Doesn't a wall hurt that? Pardon me? Wouldn't a wall hurt that? <laughs> well, the wall is a separate topic. It relates more to border security. And I think that it's clear that border security is becoming important. But you know, a very interesting thing, with all the enhanced uh, search procedures on the airlines, tourism to the U.S. is actually up. There were naysayers who were saying when we put in all these new screenings, it would kill tourism. Yeah. Tourism is up 4%. That's a very healthy growth. Secretary Ross, before we let you go, one final question from myself. Stephen Bannon says we're in an economic war with China. Do you think we're in an economic war with China, the United States? Well, I think we, in effect, have been at least in economic battles with them for quite a little while. That's why the deficit is so big. The difference is now we're trying to readdress it. So you define it as a war currently? I don't, no, I say there are at least trade battles that are going on. Where you draw the line between a series of individual battles and a war, I don't think is terribly important. I think what is important 
we feel that the deficit with them is too big. Our trade deficit essentially has two components. One geographic, that's called China. One product, that's called automotive. We fix those two, you fix a lot of the trade deficit. So, so final question, Secretary Ross. You're going to Asia next yes. week. What do you hope to come back with? Should we expect an announcement? Oh, I don't ever want to anticipate an announcement from a single trip. Oh, These are far that. more complicated <laughs> things. Be a what, what do you hope to come back with? Well, uh, I'm not just going to China. I'm also going to Thailand, uh, to Laos. So it's, it's for several purposes. One is to talk about the specifics with those countries. And the other is to make clear the message we're not forsaking uh, Asia. Uh, the, Chi- the Chinese and some others have been advancing the theory maybe we're giving up on Asia. We're not. Okay. U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, thank you very much for being with us this morning. Thank you. Good to talk with you. Jonathan. I was saying he comes with a much bigger entourage than he used to. Yeah. <laughs> Wilbur used to fly solo and now yeah. there's so many of them. He's, he's earning well, it, I think. I, I, I think he's I've, earning I've, it. I've become a protected species. <laughs> <laughs> David Rubenstein joining us here on our phone lines. It's his show on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio in its third season. In this episode, he sits down with uh, Les Moonves, the uh, CEO uh, of CBS. And um, suffice to say, David, great to speak with you. Suffice to say, uh, Les Moonves has uh, attracted a lot of praise for how he's helmed this company. What is it about his leadership of CBS uh, that's proved to be so promising? Well, he's really helped turn the company around in many ways. When he went there, it was... uh having some problems, let's say. And he's now dramatically increased the stock price, dramatically increased the market value. And how did he do it? Well, he's a very engaging person. He's a good leader, but he has a ability to pick shows that, that do well. And his you know, picking of, of shows like, uh, um, uh, let's say, uh, CSIS, um, which is a, a uh, uh, kind of a drama show, a Big Bang Theory, a comedy show. He picks these shows, and they do quite well. So he's a uh, uh, got the ability to do things that everybody wishes they had in that business, which is to identify shows you, that will go on the air and stay for quite a while. David Gurr, could you see a Survivor episode, Survivor David Rubinson? Well, <laughs> well that's another one that actually on that one, he, uh, he, he was, when it was first presented to him, he thought it wasn't going to work. But now I think, yeah. he think it's been on 18 years or so, and he, he actually did green light it. So well, um, he's, he's got a very good ability to figure out what the American people want to watch. And it goes back to the collective memory, and you've got brilliantly within the show the idea, the certitude, David, that we knew that Viacom would be the juggernaut, and CBS right. was, was I Love Lucy. I remember, oh, CBS, it's I Love Lucy reruns. I mean, that's all right. it was. Well, look, uh, when Viacom was uh, purchased CBS, people thought that t- together the two companies would do well, but it turned out there were some differences. They split the two. Viacom and CBS were split again. And it was thought, as you just suggested, that CBS wouldn't grow that well, and it was a slow-growth company. Viacom would be a rocket, but it turned out to be somewhat the opposite. So uh, Les is, uh, is well-liked. He's got a, a very good personality. I've gotten to know him over the years because as the chairman of the Kennedy Center, I work with him on the Kennedy Center Honors, which are, are, are uh, mm-hmm. uh, broadcast by CBS. And, um, you know, he just has the ability to, to really yeah. figure out what shows are going to work. 
Uh, how, go ahead, David. Well, David just on, on, on the subject of Viacom, I remember last summer there was so so much speculation that um, these two companies would come together, Viacom and, and CBS. I wonder if he said anything about that. There was speculation that he was uh, talking to Sherry Redstone about the prospects of, uh, of this happening. Uh, ultimately, that deal didn't happen. We, we didn't talk about it on the interview. We talked about almost everything else. We didn't talk about that, but it's clear that he didn't want to do it. Uh, clear, I think, from reading the press accounts, that he just felt he's got a very good company, and he felt that maybe if he merged it with uh, Viacom, it would hurt CBS. So he wasn't that interested mm. in it, I, I believe, but I didn't ask him about that on the show. Um, clearly, uh, he's uh, a person that uh, has some challenges ahead mm. of him in the sense that CBS, while it's done quite well and is a very good company, it still has a very small market capitalization compared to the people now coming into this business. So Apple, yeah. um, Facebook, uh, Netflix, these, these all uh, have bigger market caps, and they can spend a lot of money. So now CBS, to compete for talent, has to probably uh, spend more money. Uh, David Rubenstein, help then with the idea that CBS needs distribution. How do you perceive, and I don't mean to look at the transactions of Carlisle, but how do you see the media industry playing out around this odd thing called distribution? Well, clearly distribution used to be broadcasting uh, shows over the air. Then it became cable, but now it's largely streaming and over computers and, and mobile phone devices. And as a result, uh, the industry's been upended a bit. Now, Les would say, well, having the ability to have good talent to pick good shows and putting them on the air is still a very good business, and he has a very good eye for that and ear for that. But and there's no doubt that in the future, uh, when you have Apple, which has maybe $250 billion in cash, you have with Facebook and, 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 and Amazon with these large market caps, they can afford to buy the best talent, and in time, they can afford to buy you know, even maybe CBS. I don't. And CBS isn't for sale, and 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 so forth. But but you you know you have to wonder whether smaller companies can survive in the business of uh, when they're giants out there. What did he have to say about sports? Uh, I remember talking with him briefly yeah. at Sun Valley at the Allen Company Conference this summer. David Zaslav as well, just about the price of sports, how expensive it's become. This is still hugely important to CBS's bottom line. Yes, sports are very. Uh, prestigious to have. But for example, he mentioned the Masters, and the Masters, they essentially have no advertising on it because that's the deal with the Masters, uh, the Augusta National Club. So it's it's uh, prestigious to have and maybe has other benefits, but they don't make a lot of money on that. Football, he said, you have to have football, NFL football. You have to have it, and it basically um, it, it, it's a big draw for advertisers. But because you have to pay such large fees to the NFL, you don't make that much money on it. But in the end, he certainly is happy to have it. David, thank you for attending our global uh, business forum uh, the other day. What was the, what, what was your takeaway from it? There was a usual um, effort towards, I guess, thought leadership in that. But there's always a certain insight that surprises. What surprised you within the conversations you had? I think the business community is somewhat worried that um, Washington does seem dysfunctional at oh, times. Really? Yes. And Congress is, doesn't seem to be able to pass laws um, the way they're supposed to. So there's some concern about that. And obviously there's concern about what's going on in, in North Korea. And so there's some concern about that. Generally, uh, Bloomberg was able to attract, I think it was, 40 heads of state and 200 CEOs. So it was a very good uh, conference that really filled the gap that was left from the, the Clinton Global Initiative. And the Clinton Global Initiative ended at the end of last year. And uh, this conference really now has filled that gap. And it brings together people during U.N week. So you have heads of state here. You have to have many heads of state coming, and you also have many CEOs. And, and so this conference is a kind of a sister conference to, to uh, a lot of things that are happening in New York at that time. 
David, a real pleasure to talk to you. Treat to talk to you two times uh, in one week. That's David Rubenstein Thank of you. the Carlisle Group, the host of uh, the David Rubenstein Show, Peer to Peer Conversations, which, air, which airs on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio on radio at 5 p.m. at Wall Street time on Friday evenings, multiple times uh, on Saturday, airs on television uh, on Wednesdays uh, in the evening, Saturday at 9 a.m. and 1 p.m., Sunday at 10 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. Of course, you can check it out online at Bloomberg.com. Uh, Again, this week, uh, Season 3, mm-hmm. Episode 8, he sits down with Les Moonves, the CEO of CBS. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.